your thoughts on the Michael White case. Now, of course, this is the Edmonton man who made headlines this week because he was released after being convicted of killing his pregnant wife. And not only did he murder his pregnant wife, he orchestrated a press conference to uh, start a search party. He was part of that search and then was found out to be the one who took her life. Uh, Now he's a free man and it's raising all kinds of questions in terms of the principles here and the the foundations that this country is built on in terms of maybe being too gentle on criminals. Is that the case or is there something more here that we need to understand? We're going to get into it right now with our guest who's criminal defense lawyer and legal commentator, Michael Spratt. Michael, good to have you on the show. Thanks for making the time. Yeah, no problem. It's a pleasure. This story, I mean, it's really, it's been everywhere in Edmonton uh, for the last several days because it just outrages people. It makes people really mad to think that a situation like this could take place. Michael White has served his time, correct? Is that why he's he's a free man? Or was this an appeal that led to a situation that maybe is sooner than we thought? Well, he served some of his time, but not all of his time. And he's not really a free man. He's not serving a sentence behind bars, but he's served his 18 years of parole ineligibility, and he was granted parole. But with a second-degree murder conviction, um, uh, there was a life sentence. And so he's going to be serving a sentence for the rest of his life. And the parole board and corrections are going to have uh, control over him. For the rest of his life, mandating that he do certain things, they can put conditions on him, and ultimately, and most importantly, um, the slightest infraction, breaking one of those rules, even if it's not a new crime, can result in him having his parole revoked and finding himself back behind bars. I think there's a lot of skepticism that he will land again once land once again behind bars because I think people hear this and think that this is just another story in what seems to be sort of a lax criminal justice system, at least based on some of the stories that we've heard coming through recently. So let's just talk about what his life looks like now. What kind of hold um, do we still have on him? What are some limitations? Can he work? Can he travel? What is what is daily life really break down to look like for someone who's out on these kind of conditions? Yeah, the parole board uh, and, and corrections will have some level of control. Um, they'll be able to uh, determine where he lives, um, under what conditions uh, he can live in certain places, what types of jobs he can have, who he can have contact with. They could prohibit him from consuming drugs and alcohol. They could prohibit him from having contact with uh, certain groups of people. He might need to report every single romantic relationship um, or friendship that he has uh, to, uh, to his parole supervisor. So there can be some pretty strict conditions. And this is how our system is set to function. When you look at um, you know, horrendous cases, um, it can seem lax and lenient. But we have, you know, a foundation through the Corrections and Release Act, through through our parole, through our gradual reintegration that takes into account principles of rehabilitation, principles of punishment and principles of retribution. And one of the defining characteristics of our system is that when you zoom out from individual cases and you look at the broad system overall, um, we actually do a very good job of making sure that there isn't recidivism. 
obviously communities and people affected by by gruesome and horrendous and unspeakable crimes um, will be disappointed that someone is released. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there, there probably can be, I can imagine if it was a, my family member, there can probably be no punishment that would satisfy, um, you know, someone who is impacted or the community. But, um, you know, that's why we have sort of these arm's length organizations um, dispensing justice and monitoring him. And, you know, we don't leave it to sort of vigilante justice because in the end run, it's sort of these overarching principles that have actually served us very well um, compared to a lot of other uh, jurisdictions, including other Western democracies. Yeah, you know, it's it's that where I, I think I'm torn. I do think that, you know, there should be there should be a certain element of rehabilitation when someone goes to prison. But it's a tough pill to swallow in a situation like this where you look at the really cold, calculated nature of murdering your pregnant wife and then taking part in the search. It just seems to lend itself to it's just an extra layer of vitriol and evil in so many ways. I want to clarify, when we're talking about life in prison, we're really talking about 25 years. Is that right? Well, 25 years is the, um, you know, the parole ineligibility period for for first degree murder. Um, And it, it can be the parole ineligibility period for a lot of other offenses, too. But for for this case, there was a 17 years where he couldn't apply for parole. But the sentence um, that he is still serving will extend for the rest of his life. And so he'll be on parole, um, assuming that there's no offense, uh, assuming that he follows the rules, assuming that, you know, he has been rehabilitated. He will serve out the rest of his life um, under the supervision and monitoring of, of corrections in the parole board. And he's serving a life sentence. Are the penalties different for someone who murders um, a woman who's expecting uh, like a would a, would a pregnant woman's life be considered different to um, to to criminally prosecute because it's it's two lives and not one? Well, we don't have a law in Canada. Um, there has been some proposals, and I think for good reason. This is a larger discussion, of course, mm-hmm. that that you know, um, murdering an unborn fetus, um, you know, isn't a, a separate charge of murder. But when we look at, you know, how long of a parole ineligibility period was imposed, um, um, the judge looks at the individual facts of the case. And, you know, the fact that um, it was intimate partner violence, the fact that there's a power dynamic, the fact that she was uh, pregnant are all certainly aggravating factors that a court would consider when passing sentence. Mm -hmm. And so. I completely understand that um, people might be be shocked, right? Might be upset about this decision. But I think that if there is sort of that outcry, I think that the most productive way to to sort of manifest that is to make sure that, you know, we know that people are released. And even people who commit other very serious crimes, they get definite sentences. They will be released after a year or two or three or five. We need to make sure that when someone is in custody, for those 17 years in this case, or, you know, for any custodial period, that there is true programming, true rehabilitation, that people aren't, you know, dehumanized and put in a worse situation Mm -hmm. so that if they are released, they're more likely to commit offenses. And we need to be um, sure that we insist that, you know, police and correctional authorities um, use their ever-expanding budgets to monitor these cases appropriately, and they spend their funds appropriately. 
So instead of, you know, arresting homeless people who are committing nuisance offenses or, you know, using police budgets to deal with mental health and treating addiction like a crime, you know, that money can be used to actually make sure that there is even stricter monitoring and supervision and treatment and control over over individuals who are either done serving their sentence or or still uh, on parole. So in a situation like this, when we're talking about Michael White and he is someone who is seen to be rehabilitated at least enough to not be serving his time in prison, is that a signal that the system is working? Are there advancements being made um, that would signify that you know things are moving in the right direction in order to rehabilitate people? Yeah, the, the parole board, in my experience, is not lenient on letting people out. Mm. Um, if anything, there, there is um, a reluctance um, by, the, by our parole boards to, to take risks to let people out. And, and no system is 100% perfect. But by releasing him, the parole board you know, has said that, that he doesn't pose a risk to the public. And you know, that is uh, an important principle uh, of our criminal justice system, because our system is one of balance. Like, yes, there is deterrence and denunciation and, and you know, retribution, you know, um, punishing someone because they did a crime. But we also have to look at um, some other very important principles um, like rehabilitation and reintegration, um, you know, how we treat people in custody and how we treat people who have committed horrible acts but um, express the, the desire to do better and have proven that um, throughout their custodial time as found by the parole board. That says something about us as a society as well. And so those, these, this is all of the, the, the sort of factors that go into that balance. I wonder when we're talking about um, reintegration, how much of that, um, how much of day passes and extended time away from prison plays into that? Because I noticed that in the Michael White case, he was afforded that and had the opportunities to be away from prison for weekends. Was that sort of a, a strategy to dip your toe into the outside world? Is that part of that reintegration process? Is that typical? It is a very important part of the reintegration process. And sadly, it's something that we're seeing less and less. We're seeing because of, you know, tough on crime sort of rhetoric. Um, you know, we've heard this even from in some of our federal politics that, you know, life means life, that, you know, you serve your whole sentence in jail before you get out. No parole for serious offenses. Um, you know, all that means is that you're releasing someone from a con- controlled custodial institute into the wild with no support and no supervision, with, you know, um, no guardrails put in place. Mm. And when you have sort of this gradual reintegration, and I've represented people who have served, you know, 15 years or longer in jail. One case I I can recall is someone who was wrongfully convicted and served over 15 years in jail. Having someone like that released who has been institutionalized, my client was paralyzed. He couldn't make choices. There was no cell phones when he went into jail. Mm. He tried to order a coffee at, 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 uh, at Second Cup and he couldn't make a decision because decisions had been made for him. But if you have someone who gets gradually released, who starts off with a a day pass and has to come back to to the facility, has to prove that they can follow conditions in in a controlled and safe environment, and then are released into halfway houses where there is monitoring and supervision and more control, you can really limit the risks. And at the same time, you can make sure that, that, you know, the individual is set up to succeed and to be a productive member of the community um, rather than commit a new offense or be an unproductive member of the community. And at the end of the day, 
um, you know, having someone who is rehabilitated and reintegrated successfully um, and can make reparations for uh, for the harm that they've done, that's in in everyone's interest. Although it may sometimes not satisfy, you know, the bloodlust we I think naturally can feel in yeah. some of these, you know, more serious cases. Yeah, because it's hard to separate that logic from, you know, the hatred that we feel towards these people for doing what they do, especially in a case like this. Michael, thank you so much for sharing your insight and shedding a little bit of light on how the system really works. Really appreciate your time today. Yeah, no problem. Anytime. Of course. Michael Spratt is a criminal defense lawyer and legal commentator. 